0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to uh, <clears throat> have you turn back to Proverbs chapter 9. We'll be there in a, just a little bit. Uh, last week, we out of chapter 9, we saw a great practical lesson on, on getting God's knowledge and wisdom and understanding. We have been hammering on that as we've come through the book of Proverbs because it just keeps popping up all the way through. And honestly, you're well aware of this by now, there's probably no three greater concepts that we need to have in our life. And totally understand what they represent is the words knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And uh, through those words, we defined last time uh, a key term in the book of Proverbs. And that is the phrase, the fear of the Lord. And seven times in the book of Proverbs, you find uh, God instructing us and forming and framing uh, some great principles around that phrase, the fear of the Lord. We know now that the fear of the Lord is not just about what God can do to us and that we're never to uh, fear God in that sense, but rather uh, more uh, fearing of losing the things that God has given us uh, in our own life and, of course, ultimately at the judgment seat of Christ. A lot of misinformed people in the world today in Christianity, and, you know, they're afraid that they can lose their salvation. That's probably been one of the greatest heresies that's been taught among saved people for many, 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 many years. And uh, we know now that we know you can't. I mean, that's never been an issue here. We know what the Bible teaches on it. But I say that because, brother, there are some things that, that as a Christian you can lose without ever losing your salvation. And when you lose these things, it actually brings to your mind that you've lost your salvation when you inhabit. You can lose your marriage. Uh, You can lose your wife or you can lose your husband. You can lose your kids and be saved. You can be saved and lose your health. You can be saved and on your way to heaven and lose the power of God in your life. You can be saved and on your way to heaven and lose your joy. You can be saved and and on your way to heaven and lose your fellowship and your relationship that you have with God on a daily basis. You can certainly, when you get all of these things in your life because we don't follow what God wants us to say, then the next thing that we lose that makes us feel that we've lost our salvation when we really haven't is you lose the assurance of your salvation. And then you can lose your rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and you can lose your millennial inheritance. You might not ever be able to lose the salvation that God has given you, but you can lose the things that come into your life because of your salvation without ever losing that salvation. So people, you know, people, uh, they, they get to the point where they, they don't know the Word of God. They don't understand how it lays out, so they get caught up in this and think that they can lose their salvation. Now, today we're going to finish out chapter 9, Next week, we'll start chapter 10. Well, we'll go back now to, uh, you'll see here in just a moment, talking about the foolish woman. We know her by her alias as the strange woman, as we have found her in chapter 2, verse 16. We also saw her again in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 20, and again in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 10. Really, she's been all through here up to this point. And we now have identified her as the great religious harlot that's talked about in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, talks about Babylon mystery, the great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And we know in the book of Proverbs, as he's laying out, we have two kinds of men. We have a wise man and a foolish man. We also have two women. One will represent the true church of Jesus Christ. The other one will represent the counterfeit of the church of Jesus Christ. And we know that this strange woman of Proverbs, and in this case, uh, we talk about uh, her, we know that she represents all the false religions of the earth down through history and even today. And upon examining them and what they believe, We see that even though they might look different from uh, uh, each other and call themselves by different names or by different denominations, they all originate, when you really put a study to it, they all originate from her as their spiritual mother or their spiritual source. Last couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked a question about the queen of heaven found in the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah. And I I showed you how that uh, all through the Old Testament that there was uh, with Baal worship that they they had to have a a counterpart to the male figure of God. And so they had to have a female deity. And we explained the reason why and went through all of that. And I showed you that, that almost every false religion, almost without exception, there are a few but not many, will always have some kind of female deity associated with what they believe one way or the other. And that's, uh, that is a way that you can begin to spot them. Now, I want to begin here as we look at this foolish woman who we now know as the strange woman. I want to begin reading in chapter 9 of Proverbs, verse 13, and come down to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to make some remarks about it, and we'll, we'll close out this chapter. It says in verse 13, A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knoweth nothing. For she sitteth at the door of her house on a seat in the high places of the city to call passengers who go right on their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he knoweth not that the dead are there, and that her guests, are in the depths of hell. Now, Father, help us today as we lay out this passage here and begin to look at some great things in closing out this chapter. This has been a really good chapter. And, Lord, has helped us even understand better the three greatest words that a Christian can ever get working for him or her in their life, and that is the understanding of getting knowledge in their life, getting wisdom in their life, and then getting understanding in their life. So help us today as we come here and we look at this and show us give us the understanding uh, about this woman we're going to look at her from a little different angle today and help us to get the wisdom and understanding of how she operates and of uh, the dangers that are associated with her and help us go away today a little wiser a little smarter and a little clo- closer to you in our understanding of these things and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus name as sake we ask it amen now in this passage starting out here you find you find three things said about this woman. The first thing it says is that she's clamorous. I didn't say glamorous. I said she's clamorous. Now, clamorous in the Bible, that means she's a loud woman, an obnoxious woman, a boisterous, stubborn woman. A riotous spirit of rebellion lies within her. She's clamorous. She's always, we talk about calamity. A calamity, it comes from the word clamorous. That's where it comes from. Then it says that she's simple. She's simple in the sense that she's unteachable, like we've talked about a couple of weeks ago. She's simple in the sense that she doesn't care about what's right or what's wrong as it pursue truth. She's simple-minded in those things. And then the third thing it says in verse 13 is she knows nothing. There's no truth associated with her. You're going to see as we come down through here that she portrays that she has truth, but she doesn't have truth, and then you're going to get understanding And that when a religion doesn't have truth and doesn't have anything to give anybody, I'm going to show you today what they do to maintain uh, themselves that everybody believes and gets deceived that they're really, really a church. She has no understanding of God in anything, she says, or she does. And yet, putting this into the 20, 21st century context that we all know and are associated with, she represents religions that take people uh, in from all walks of life. But she's a false religion that will send a man to hell, and she does so by the millions every year. In the book of Proverbs, as I stated a moment ago, you find two types of women. In Proverbs 31, you find the virtuous woman. Now, she represents for us the true church, when you would study her throughout the book of Proverbs and gain the understanding about her, you'll see that she represents what we ought to be as Christians. She represents all the character qualities that God has. When we get to Proverbs chapter 31, we'll have a great time uh, looking at her and studying her and laying her out and understanding all the great qualities. But she is a picture, inspirationally, of the true church. She is a... A picture of Christianity as defined in the Bible with all the character qualities that are good character qualities that we get from God. Then the other woman will be found in Proverbs chapter 2, 5, and chapter 7, and we, we, we know who she is. She's the strange woman. She's the foolish woman, and she represents the false religious churches. She looks religious. She appeals to men as the true church, but in reality, she's not. And, and some people, you know, when you start to talk to people about things like this and you start to talk about false churches, and I've, I've never fully understood this, but the people around that actually think that, you know, because a place is a church with a building and has a religious context to it and have Bibles and people that claim to love God and, and have all the religious things, They just can't get in their mind. There's there's such a thing out there in the world today as false churches. Ah, they know. They have no problem with Satan worship. I mean, if they went to a, a, a church across the street and walked in there and saw a big pendulum up there and everybody was dressed in black and passing out pitchforks, they wouldn't go. They understand that concept, but they think that the devil only works in those kinds of parameters that he only operates, you know, in a red union suit with a tail and a horns and a pitchfork. And that, you know, Charles Manson would be a satanic person. But Joe Olstein couldn't be. Right. See how it works? Amen. Amen. And if I had my druthers, I'd rather spend time with Charles Manson and Joe Olstein. I mean, I'm sure Charles Manson jokes are much better. But anyway, <laughs> just kidding you. We, 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 we tend to have this problem, you see, and I understand, I understand it, but I don't understand it. I understand that people get that way because they don't know anything about the Bible. I understand that people get that mindset because they really don't understand that the devil's main sphere of operation has always been religion. They think that the devil's down in the dumps and the bars and, and all the drug addicts and all of that stuff, and that's where he's at. And they always associate the devil with the deep, dark things of sin. I got news for you. Just as most of you would not bother getting tainted by any of that stuff down there, the devil won't either. Amen. That's not his sphere of operation. He's already got those people. No, no. The Bible makes it very clear, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13, 14, and 15. It talks about that Satan has false apostles. He has false religious leaders. Workers. He he says in 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And then he says in verse 14, and it's no marvel. I don't know why it's a marvel to most people. And no marvel that for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Why, the first time the devil shows up in the Bible and he wants to damn the plan of God and damn man's souls to hell for all of eternity when he came to Eve, he didn't offer a beer, he didn't offer a joint, he didn't offer her to go out and commit some great sin. He simply said the first words out of his mouth, yea, hath God said. Then he just conveniently changed what God said. He deceived her. And that's what we've got here. The devil's main theme of operation is religion as the angel of light. It says in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 11, therefore, because of what I already said, it is no great thing if his he's got ministers, yep. if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Now, I, I, I don't know how much clearer it can get. And yet we we struggle with things like that. And the reason why we do is because we don't understand the Bible. We don't understand Proverbs. We don't have the understanding that we need. And so when we talk about this lady today, the first thing I want to bring to your attention that I know we've seen her in times past, but there's something different here today that I want to draw your attention to. Where in other passages, she's portrayed as a harlot, a lady of the evening who walks the street at night looking for stupid people to seduce religiously. And we know that the nighttime is a picture of the church age. We've come through all of that. She's not portrayed that way in this passage. In this passage, she's seated in a house at the front door. And she's seated in the high places. And from the Bible, with just that information, if you know anything about the Bible, I want to show you how easy today it is to define who she is. Now, first of all, it says she has a house. Well, come on. Psalms 42, verse 4. Psalms 84, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. 1 Timothy 3, 15. <coughs> calls the church the house of God. A house. So, the, when the Bible says she's got a house, we're not... We already know that she represents false religion. So it doesn't mean that she's got a house in Raytown or Overton Park or Shawnee Mission, Kansas or Independence. This house that they're talking about is a church. She's counterfeited the concept. And Proverbs chapter 2, verse 18 says that her house inclineth the death. Now, I know... <laughs> I know you go to a lot of churches where you get bored stiff and you think you're going to die, and we're not talking about that. Years ago, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me is, and I was in a church and they had in the front lobby there they had a uh, they had a, a plaque that had about nineteen or twenty names on it, and it was it was. Uh, they're young men that from World War II all the way up to Vietnam, and Vietnam had just ended at that point, that had given their life and service for this country. And it was a beautiful thing. And I'll never forget, we used to bus in a lot of little bus kids. And, you know, they're sweet kids, but they don't know nothing about church, and they're in awe of everything that's going around. And I time and time, I'm walking down the hall, and I saw this little bus kid just looking at that, Big old plaque up there with all those names on it. And I walked over to him. and said, how are you doing, son? He said, I'm doing fine. <clears throat> I said, you like that? He says, yeah. He says, but I don't know what it is. I said, these are all the men of our church who died in the service. He looks at me and says, the morning service or the evening service? <laughs> Sometimes it seems like you're going to die. That's not what I'm talking about here. Not where I'm going at. The Bible says her house incline at the death. Proverbs 5, 8 says, come not near. Warns us, come not near to the door of her house. Second thing it says here, that she likes the high places. That's an easy one to find in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 23, that great chapter where Christ is taken apart the scribes and the Pharisees. He says in Matthew 23, 6, he says that these false religious leaders, these false teachers, these men who have transformed themselves to be something real when there's something not, that they love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogue. They like being above, higher than everybody else. While everybody else is down here, they like sitting up here. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world. Here it comes. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. If somebody would ask me, Bob, where do you think the devil is at today in this world? And if the Antichrist is alive, and I personally think that he probably is, where do you think that they're hanging out today? My answer would be find the, find the religious organization that is the highest religious organization that the world looks at that is dialed into politics with religion. Somewhere in that mix, that's where he'll be. He's always in the high places. Spiritual wickedness in high places. In the Old Testament, I'm sure you've read about this and probably never really understood it. Now, maybe it'll make more sense to you. You come through some of those places back there, and it talks about those kings tearing down the high places. It talks about them destroying the groves and the idols and the weavings of the hanging of the weaving. They all connected with Baal worship but there was a place back there that they, they had in Baal worship called the high places. And it's where they, they, they burnt incense on a high place to Baal. And they, they, they were destroyed. And you'll find in 1 Kings 3, 2 and 3 and uh, that they destroy them. In 1 Kings 12, 32, you'll find that they actually had priests who were over the high places to burn incense. 1 Kings twenty two forty three. 43 other places, you find it all through the Old Testament. Now, I'm not fighting this. I'm just telling you. Maybe you don't want to know these things. B, I like to know where everything comes from. I don't ever want to just, I just I just always want to know where everything comes from. I, I Sometimes I don't care. Sometimes I do care. But I just like knowing. I mean, I, I just, I, I read the National Enquirer because inquiring people want to know. See? So I want to know why things are the way they are. I know I can't change it. I I know I can't fix it. I want to know why Jesus Christ wasn't born on December 25th. I'm not going to boycott Christmas, but I want to know. I want to know why that in the New Testament church up to 325 AD, there wasn't one New Testament church on this planet that ever recognized Easter. I want to know why that is. No, I'm not going to boycott Easter. I think you'll all look good in your Ashtar bonnets, in your new Ashtar clothes. I I understand that. But I want to know. I want to know why in this world things are the way they are. Because it all comes back to the Bible. And you find these high places all through the Word of God. Now, some of you are going to like this. Some of you are not going to like it. Some of you are going to think it's stupid. I don't tell you. Now, but this is why. this is why churches... Without, I'm not saying they do it because they're demonic. I'm not saying they, churches do a lot of things today because it's tr- in tradition with churches that they don't understand why they do it. Do you know that? Mm-hmm. This is why churches have steeples. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you thought it was that little thing. is here's, here's the church, there's the steeple, open the door and there's all the people. I thought that you'd have to have that part to make that work. But the reason why churches have steeples, and I don't even, I mean, I know where, you go over to Europe and you see those cathedrals, they have steeples that just go up for miles. Not miles, but they're up there pretty high. <laughs> I do have a tendency to exaggerate every so often, but not very often. But, but those, you, and, and, and a reason why they do that. They do that so wherever you're at in town, you can see that church. That's why it started. But that's why they did it in Baal worship. Now, you know, if your church that you go to in your video today has a steeple, please, it's probably a fine church. It's probably a neat little steeple. I'm great. I'm good. I'm not fighting it. I'm not saying go home with a chainsaw this afternoon and cut the sucker off. I'm not telling you to do those things. I'm telling you why things are the way they are. Now, but I will tell you that if we ever have a church other than this building here, it won't have a steeple. And I'll, I'll explain why in a little bit. But this is why things are the way they are. You don't, you don't get, go to seed on it and go around with a sign, you know, boycotting steeples at churches. That's not what you do. But you want to know why things are the way they are. It all goes back to the high places. And it goes back to Europe. And it goes back to around 325 when those churches started to begin to be built that they had a whole different purpose than the church in Acts. The early church in Acts, the Waldensians a little later on, the Albigensians and those guys, they didn't have church steeples. There's a reason for that. She likes the high places. You got to trace that back. Then she has a seat. She has a seat. As one preacher said one time in the book of Revelation, this woman sits on seven hills, which are seven uh, mountains. So she's got a big seat. That's what he said. I'm not saying that. I'm like the preacher one time was preaching back in Genesis, you know, and he's talking about when Adam gave, God made the woman and brought her down to Adam and he, he wasn't a very good preacher and he didn't know his Bible very well and he's coming down there and he's saying, and God brought the woman down to the man and he turned a page and when he did, four or five pages stuck together and got in Genesis 6 and about the ark and it says, and she was 100 cubits wide and 200 cubits long. I mean, I'm not talking, she has a seat. Now in the Bible now in the Bible when it talks about having a seat, it always you want to remember this, it'll always be a reference in somebody being firmly in control and operating to a plan. It'll be a seat of authority. We talk about our president right now, or any president that may be in, when they refer to him, they refer to him as a sitting president. And that simply means that he's the one in authority. Seat in the Bible will always represent an authority position. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, if you're saved here today, we have the authority to know that we're saved. You know why? You you know if you're truly saved this morning and you you, you you know truly how you know that you can never lose your salvation and you are truly saved. You know what your authoritative verse is on that? Anybody know? Bible says in Ephesians two six, because you're saved, you are now what? Seated in heavenly places. I mean, you actually think you're going to do something stupid and God's going to have one of the angels cross down through everybody and say, you need to get up and leave now. <laughs> <laughs> now, in history, church history, we know that there's seven periods of church history, and you can actually, believe it or not, we've done it when we laid out church history, you can actually trace the beginning of his church, this woman, where she gets that seat. And it's found in the third period of church history, which we know as Pergamus. Pergamus means much marriage. And it's a time where that the majority, I said the majority, God's always had his faithful remnant, but it's a time around 300, 300 to 500 AD where you find that the majority of Christianity leaves the Bible and begins this process of building churches that have nothing to do with God and the Bible. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul was talking about this very time period in the church period at Pergamos, and here's what he says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right, these things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Here it comes, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipodes was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. By 300 A.D. in Christianity, he has got a firm seat. He has a firm church that's now in operation. Some people have a tough time with that. And this is where you can find him. This will be the strange woman weaving her way into the church in church history with her seat of power and a church. This is 300 years after the death of Christ. 300 years through the process of deviating from the Bible, changing doctrines, throwing out this, putting in this, bringing in this heresy. It took 300 years for her to formulate everything to get it ready to go. But in 325 AD or thereabouts, she now has a firm seat as a church. Look at verse 15. To call passengers who go right on their way. I, I, I always study sentence structure because I think it's very important of how you, how you get out of a verse what, it, what he's trying to say. Notice the structure of this verse. People who go right on their way. She, she's not out after the drunks and the sinners of the world. She's already got them. No, what she's after are the ones who, who have the ability to do Right. And take them and seduce them religiously, and then through her subduction destroys them. She wants to take the young man that is a good man, but he's void of understanding, Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 7. Yet he may have some good character to him, he may have some principles in his life, he may be a moral man, and then through the religious system that is false of illusion. And I'm going to show you the illusion here in just a little bit. Bring him into her house and destroy him and take him to hell with all the right things in his life except the God of the Bible. She's looking for a good, moral, upstanding, family-loving, principled man who does good things for people, helps people, has good set of moral, yet he winds up in the lake of fire by following her church. And let me tell you something, the world is filled with them today. Now, a couple of weeks back, I talked about how that God can't go more than a couple chapters without giving an invitation. This woman is good at invitations too. Now we're going to look at her invitation. She counterfeits everything. Look at verse 16. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith. Now here it comes. Here's her instructions to the simple men and women of this planet who are void of understanding. Here's her instructions to fool them that they think they're getting understanding when in reality, God has nothing to do with it. We have seen this guy before chapter 5 and chapter 7. Now what follows here is the modern day doctrine and philosophy and the teaching of churches today that are false churches. And you noticed I haven't named any churches and I'm not going to. I figure I'll offend you enough by what I'm saying without offending you all the way. So I'll kind of dial it back. There was a time in my life when I would have gave out names and telephone numbers, but uh, that you know what? I matured a little bit. And I wouldn't want to embarrass some of these churches for anything in the world. So I just, you know, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a liberal in some ways. I've been, you know, I, I just, I should never have went to that Democratic Convention a couple of years ago. But anyway, all false churches do what I'm about to tell you. Now, here's the other little side note I want to put in. A lot of Baptist churches do it, too. The difference is that Baptist churches, and I can pick on Baptist churches because I'm a Baptist, so I'll say that. But Baptist churches have a tendency, uh, even though they teach salvation and they have uh, the Bible and they have a truth, they have a tendency to forsake a lot of their truth and put these things in because they see it out there in the world of religion and they think it works. And we'll talk about that as we come down through here. And some Baptist churches fall into this. And again, I'm not going to name Baptist churches out there that I think do. I'll let you, if you've got any brains at all, you can put it together yourself. But this is an invitation of a worldly Christianity to go to church, yet keep the things of the world in your church. Now, building a church probably has never been easy. And building a church today, a biblical church, is not very easy either. But I'll tell you the easiest way to build a church is just to let all the world bring its stuff into the church and still call yourself a Christian. You'll pack them out. You see, as long as you can bring the world in, everybody's going to come. It's when you've got to shut the door and say, you've got to change some things about you that you're going to run into some problems. Yeah. Now, these churches simply apply to man's flesh and not his spirit. And because he has no absolute standard, he lost the Bible, he has no final authority to define all of these things, then he gets caught up into it. They appeal to man's sight, what he sees, and his emotion, what he feels, but never appeal in their ministry to his spirit or his conscience or his heart. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 27 says, "The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. When God first touched you on your shoulder, when God first started to work in your life in my life to get you where you're at today and to get you saved or present to you the gospel, He didn't do it by appealing to what you saw. He didn't do it by appealing to your flesh and your emotions. He did it by appealing to your conscience. He did it by taking the spirit of man, which is the candle, and he lit that candle. And the Holy Spirit of God went after your conscience and went after your heart. And that's how it's supposed to work. Now, as a church, when you don't have a Bible anymore, that you lose the hand of God in your church, because I'm just going to tell you right now and again. There's probably people out there that listen to this, or maybe don't agree with this, or don't like this. But I've been in this business for a while. I understand how it works, and I'm telling you something: the only greatest possession you have, and the only thing you have that is worth anything, is the Word of God that God has given you. Amen. You can lose everything else in your life. Right. Yeah. You can burn God could burn down the church building. He could, he could burn your hymnals, and it wouldn't make any difference because the Word of God should be hidden in your heart, and you should have the Word of God singing in your heart with psalms and all that other stuff. And, 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 and The only thing that makes a difference, he can bust your candle, and he can break your beads. You didn't need them anyhow. The only thing you got and the only thing I got, and I'll stake one step further, the only thing this church has got is the book that God gave us. You lose that book and you are done. And when they threw the word of God out, they were done. I've given you before and I'm not going to dwell on it today, but there are seven things that you lose when you lose your Bible. There are seven things that you lose. Bible talks about that we as God's people, uh, when you get into the Bible, the God starts to work in you, and he furnishes you. Yet the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that when you lose the Bible, there's no furnishings. The Word of God, God only works through any church or through you as he comes through the Word of God. And Yet the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 that when you lose the Word of God, you lose the workings of God. We like to talk about loving God and we, we've covered this the last couple of weeks and I appreciate the diligence of some of you wanting to get in there and, and, and find it out because you really want to love God and you probably found out that you already were loving him in a, in a great way. But we talk about loving God across the board in Christianity today and yet the Bible says that if you, in John chapter 14 uh, down verse 23 that if you lose your Bible you have no ability to love God. See, you can't love God because you see him. You have to love God because he wrote you a love letter book that you're reading every day of your life that conveys that love. I love my dogs, but they never wrote me anything. (laughs) And that's the way a lot of people deal with God. They love God, but they love everything else. They love God like they love their new dress or their new car, or they love this, oh, I just love that. And they use that same expression for God. Real love for God is based on a love letter book that God wrote you that expresses his love to you that when you read it, you now have the ability to express it back to him. And when you don't have it, you can't do it. We hack about prayer. People pray all the time. Oh, every church out there has got a prayer circle, got people pray. They pray for this, they pray for that. But yet the Bible says in John chapter 15, verse 7, if you don't have the word of God, you have no prayer life. People look around and and wonder why that some of the, you know, they got to do some of the things they do in churches to get crowds to come. And I'll I'll get into this in just a little bit, but I'll tell you one of the reasons why they do it, because a guy couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. That's why. Because when you lose the word of God, Joshua chapter 1, you lose the power in preaching. And also in Joshua chapter 1, you lose your inheritance. So when that happens, to keep and maintain the illusion that God is still here, They give you something instead of the Bible, and they appeal to our flesh. They appeal to your sight. They appeal to your senses, but never to your spirit. And they take all those things to your flesh, and they try to make it a phony spiritual experience. And those without understanding never figure it out. You put on a first-class show with all the trimmings, that anybody in their right mind would look around without understanding and say, how could not God be here in all of this? This is incredible. You simply make God in the Christian life tangible things. Things you can reach out in touch. Physical things that you can put your hands on. Never mind Don't ever let them find out. Never mind the Bible teaches that real Christianity is not about anything made with hands. Don't ever let them get there and find out that real Christianity is not things that you can build or you can make. Luke chapter 17, 21 says the kingdom of God is within you. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says that the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but it's righteousness, it's peace in the Holy Ghost. Don't let them find that out. So, when she wants to give the young man understanding about building a false church, here's the advice that she gives him. Number one, build a big, beautiful church. The biggest building you can buy. Don't, don't worry about if you have to pay for it or not. The bigger and the more beautiful, the better. Make it a showpiece of the flesh. Put in a restaurant. Put a gymnasium in. Put in a spa. Make the auditorium on par with the greatest, most spacious, beautiful facility anybody has ever seen. Build a building that you can see for miles around. Don't forget the tower. Don't forget the spire. Oh, And put a cross on it so we don't miss that. Better yet, put a spotlight there and let it shoot up in the sky at night. Spend $100 million on it. People will come from all over to be part of this great religious experience. But don't ever let them find out. Don't ever let them find out. And never mind the fact that in the Old Testament, the glory of God pilgrimaged through this world in a plain old tent. Don't ever let them figure out that as God's people were wandering through this life, that the real glory and the beauty of God wasn't in some building that they made. The real glory and the building of God was in a tent that looked like it was made up of huge camouflage nets. And if you'd walk down through a 100 tents, you wouldn't be able to tell the tent that had God's stuff in it from all the other tents. But you know when you would know that you found God? When you got inside, brother, because the glory of God was never on the outside, but it was on the inside. Amen. And when you got inside, you saw that the real concept of God is not about something we built. And somebody says, well, Bob, what do you do with Sodom and temple? That's a picture of the millennium. That's your problem. When that ark of the covenant and the things of God was moving across this planet. It was in an old tent. When it finally got to a fixed spot, it was in Jerusalem and a temple. And right now we are the temple of God and we ought to be wandering all around this world and we ought to just look like the world but not be like the world to reach the world. But when he comes back, the glory of God that is in you right now will be in Jerusalem in a fixed temple. Amen. Your problem is you got no understanding. Second thing, get your praise band. Get your praise singers. Get the best, most talented people you can find. Build your whole program around worship and praise through music. Now that's spiritual. How in the world could anybody ever argue they just sang the most beautiful song I mean the music is just unbelievable. It's incredible. Feel the power of God resonating through our Bose speakers. Feel the power of God coming out of our woofers. I don't know what a woofer is. Put on Dramas. Put on plays. Make them about God. At Christmas, put on a big pageant. At Easter, put on a big pageant. Have cantatas or cantatas. Get your 100 voice choir. Feel the spirit of God as they sing Ave Maria or the moron tabernacle choir as they sing that great song. And he shall reign forever and ever. Oh, can't you feel God? Whatever you do, whatever you do, never let them find out that true worship is not about music. But never let them find out that the Bible says in John chapter four twenty four that we worship God in spirit and truth. Your human spirit and God's truth. Amen. But you see the problem? You still have your human spirit, but when you don't have the truth, you have no worship. Amen. So we make it up. There you go. And because people don't have understanding, they think now we're going to have a worship service. We're going to get up and the pastor's going to say, let's worship God with our tithes and our offerings. We're going to have a praise service. Don't ever let anybody figure out that there's no such thing as a worship service. There's no such thing as a praise service. And you can't worship God with your tithes and offerings if you wanted to. Worship exists in your heart and your personal relationship and your walk with God. And it may express itself in music. It may express itself, but it has to start with that book. That's where worship is in the Bible. Don't tell them that. Jonah, don't don't tell them that. (laughs) Then the third thing get your Bible. But be modern about it. Get one that everybody can understand. You want a modern Bible. You want a, oh, the new word. You want a progressive Bible, an up-to-date Bible for the changing times. You want a progressive church keeping up with our changing society so we need to change our Bible. Oh, we're against evolution in the schools, but we allow evolution in our church because we keep getting an evolutionary Bible. Every four or five years, it evolved into something better. But people are stupid today. Didn't mean to say that word. People don't have any understanding. I hate the word stupid. I think it's because as I was growing up, everybody called me that. (laughs) It doesn't matter that you get 20 or 30 different versions of the Bible and none of them match that the verses don't even mean the same, it doesn't matter because you're not going to get that serious with the Bible anyhow. You're not looking for doctrinal truth. You're looking for just general truth. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. i just tell you right now, we're not about general truth. Amen. We're about doctrine. Right. Amen. We want to know what the Bible says. What was sin 30, 40 years ago, no longer sin today. So, you got to get a Bible that stays up with the times. You have to change the message so you don't offend anybody. You got to change the message to fit the progressiveness of man's intellect. Don't forget this get you a big screen. No, wait, three or four of them. Make Christianity convenient. We'll put the Bible up, verses up on the screen so you don't have to bring your Bible to church anymore. We'll put the song up there, you know, that you don't even have to have the, 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 the hymn book anymore. But we don't sing the hymns anyhow. It's all this modern stuff, man. Feel it? I feel it coming on. I feel it coming on. Don't ever tell them whatever you do. Don't ever tell them whatever you do that as God's people, we need something in our lives that never changes. The world will change. It always has. It's on a course of degeneration and it's only getting worse. And the woman brought this into the church. She brought it into the, the, her church and then it's moved into the other churches. And I'm here to tell you today, I'll stand in stark uh, against that because I'm telling you, what you and I need more than anything else in a changing world is something that doesn't change. Whether you know it or not, you need an anchor for your soul. You need an anchor for your family. You need an anchor for your life every day. You need a rock, not only of your salvation, but a rock that will get you through every day of your life. As the old song says that nobody sings anymore, you need a firm foundation. My Bible is an anvil of steel that all the hammers of this world have been broken on. A book that discerns in the thoughts of man's heart something that never changes. And I know why they don't like it. I know they want to, why they want to bring in. They want, they, want to, they want to bring a Bible in that they can control. You know you can't control this one. Thank God. Amen. But all the other ones out there, you can control You can get in there, boy, and make it say whatever you want to say. But this is the only book on the planet, the only book in the world that man cannot control. It will control you or it will crush you. It's the only book on planet Earth that when you begin to read it, it begins to read you. And it discerns the thoughts and the intents of our heart. That's what we need. The Word of God is tested through the ages and it still stands today. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the word of God abideth forever. Don't let them find that out. Don't let them find that out. Now, here's the next thing you need to get, the fourth thing. She's given us instructions. And I see it today, so I know what the instructions are. You got to do this. This is her instructions to the young, simple one without any understanding. Now, you got a church. You got a choir. You got music. You got all the things. You got a Bible. Now you have to have a sermon. And let me say, every sermon should be a long three-point outline. This is what she's telling you. Point number one of your sermon, keep it short. Don't go more than 15 minutes. It's all right to spend 50 minutes on music and 30 minutes about give more money. But whatever you do, don't make don't make the Bible the feature event. Some of those churches growing up, at least we're honest about it in the dark ages and in the Reformation. You'll notice that some of those churches, not telling you which one it is, because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not spreading discord around brother. brethren. You'll notice in history, they didn't even put the pulpit in the middle. Pulpits off to the left or off to the right. I don't know if you know this or not, but you know why in Baptist churches traditionally I don't think it's pulpit right in the middle and not off at the left like some of them or off to the right where the guy looks like he's hanging out of a window? <laughs> the reason why that the Baptists put the Bible in the pulpit right in the middle because they wanted everybody to know that the central thing of our church and what we're doing is the preaching of the Word of God. That's Amen. why. And they, they wanted it to be front and center when everybody saw it. These are things you got to know. But you gotta have a sermon, gotta have a message, but you wanna keep it short. Don't don't center on the book, the Bible, as a number one thing. Don't let that be the thing your church is built around. There's no entertainment in that. And the truth of the matter is they couldn't preach their way out of a wet paper bag anyhow, so it doesn't matter that they have a wept up message. These little guys running around with little little sermonettes, you know, that they put on a little cassette that you could listen to in your radio. Second point is keep it warm and fuzzy. You want folks to feel good. You want folks to feel good about themselves. You want them to know that whatever you're going through right now couldn't be your fault. Couldn't be. They want you to know that just just wait long enough, you know, and because you're a good purpose and a right person to just keep loving God, that one day God come down and fix all your problems. Just wait. God will deliver you. You're okay. Just keep coming. And in time, God will give you the victory. God deals out blessings like the federal government gives out food stamps. It'll get to you in time. <laughs> Don't ever forget, we're victims. Whatever you're going through in life couldn't be your fault. I mean, when you were a kid growing up, your mom denied you any, any, any real breakfast. So you not only grew up scrawny, but you never had cereal. So then you turned into a serial killer when you got older. I get it. I understand. You're a victim. It'll always be my ex-wife or my ex-husband. It'll always be the people at work. It'll always be well the somebody else's kids at school. It'll always be well you know that kid made my kid bad. It'll always be the people. You know, you, you always want to let people know that, that you are the victim. And you always want to just bathe them in sympathy. Body wash them in nice, clean water and make them feel good and blow on them and dry them off. Third thing you want to tell you is you want to keep your message positive. Whatever you do, whatever you do, avoid the following subjects in your preaching. Never preach on hell. Hell's a bygone thing. Nobody believes in hell anymore. Except the people that are down there. That's like a guy told me one time when a Jehovah's Witness came to my door and I, he, he, he came up there and he said, he come up there and he says, he said, Hi, I, I'd like to give you some reading material. And I said, uh, what's what all about? And he gave me one that said, Why there is no hell. And I looked at it, and I said, why there is no hell? And he says, yeah, I'm a Jehovah Witness. And I said, you're a Jehovah's Witness? You don't believe in hell? He said, no, I don't. I said, I know all kinds of Jehovah's Witnesses that believe in hell. He says, where at? I said, all the ones that die without Christ as their own personal Savior and trust in Jehovah God, Jesus Christ. They all believe it now. But Baptist, when you preach on hell, you got to, you know, you, you can get up and say, oh, it's so wonderful to have you here today. And you're all such fine people. And I know that you, we all struggle through things, and you know we all have our issues in life. But you know, uh, you you know you can do that. But you ever try to preach on hell that way? Well, hell is not really as hot as everybody thinks it is. You know, and, you know uh, hell. You know, uh, uh, you, you know hell is a. You, you know, I mean it's a thing where it's a. You, you know, it's a nasty thing, and I don't really believe that God sends anybody there. But it's in the Bible, and you know. You know, hell is a, a place that uh, is, has a lot of uncomfortableness to it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a thing where I wouldn't advise anybody to go there. I don't really think it's there. But if it would be there, you know, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a warm spot. How many ever been to Hawaii close to the equator? <laughs> you got to preach when you preach about hell. Yeah. There is no halfway measures to it. There's no mamsy-pamsy positive stuff about hell. Hell is the most degenerate place that a man can ever wind up, and it's the place where every degenerate man winds up unless they trust Christ as their own personal Savior. Second thing you don't ever preach on, don't preach on sin. There ain't no sin anymore. I haven't met a sinner in 25 years. I met people that have shortcomings. I met people that have special challenges. (laughs) Closest that I ever got to sin in the last 30 years is somebody says, well, I've got some faults. We will use any word we can to avoid the word sin today. There is no sin. Who would have thought 30 years ago, 20 years ago, that we'd be having arguments about same-sex marriages? Mm -hmm. Who would have thought that? Who would have thought that? I mean, it's a thing where when I grew up, it, it, was, it was a non, it, was, it wasn't even, I don't even know what to say. When I grew up, it was, it was, everybody knew what it was. How do we get so confused? You know why? Because society changes. And when you have a Bible that you change and your religion changes, that's why you'll have homosexual pastors and lesbian pastors and all this stuff in the churches. Now, maybe some of you are okay with that. It's a free country. But I'll tell you what, the Bible points it out where it points. Then you got some problems because what are you going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah? So now the progressiveness of Christianity. Sodom and Gomorrah was not destroyed by God because of homosexuality, it was destroyed by God because they displayed a lack of hospitality. (laughs) Hospitality was not their problem. (laughs) <laughs> don't ever preach on judgment. God ain't going to judge anybody. Well, God is a God of love. He's not gonna. He's not gonna. I mean, he, you go into these churches and you'll never hear these sermons. And everything. Don't ever preach on anything negative. Negative preaching will make some people mad. Hard preaching will drive people away. Remember, now your goal is to build a mega church. Your goal is to reach the masses. Your philosophy is the end justifies the means. Don't worry about preaching the truth to get a crowd. Say whatever you got to say. Change whatever you got to say to get the crowd because the issue is not the truth. The issue is we want a crowd. And what do we do when we get the crowd? We know where this lady goes with it. Make coming to church a positive experience. Talk about the good in man, the spark of God that's in all of us. That just needs to be fanned. I'll fan it for you. Bring it around. Don't ever, whatever you do, don't ever tell them that in the Bible, real biblical preaching has nothing to do with that. Real biblical preaching is found in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. And it says, but the Lord said unto me, this is one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, the Lord said unto me, I am a child, say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee, deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Now that is, that's God's instructions to a man who's called to preach. I was raised under that kind of concept right there. I can put my name in that verse. God said to me one time in my life, don't be afraid of their faces, so I haven't been ever since. God said, I'll put my words in your mouth, say the words that I've said. I have ever since. And then he gives you what preaching is, and this is not very positive. Verse 10, see, I have this day set thee over nations and over kingdoms, to one, root out, two, pull down, Three, to destroy, and four, to throw down. Then, to build and to plant. Well, there's four negative things that a real Bible-believing, bible shaved preacher has to do in his message before he ever builds and plants anything. Amen. Because you know why? I know you don't like this. I don't like this. And if I was the first believer in church this morning, they wouldn't like it either. <laughs> but you know what? When people get together and they're God's people, they need to be told there's some things that in your life you need to root out. And me making you feel good about yourself, you'll never root out. You don't need a nice, smooth sermon. You need a rotor rooter going through you. You need something to go in there and root you out and find and say, that is the problem. And then you need somebody to get in there, and we all put up our little walls. We all, hi, hi, pastor, how are you today? Hi, Bob, it's good to see you. I'm looking at you through my wall. You know what a real preacher does? Pulls down that wall. Hi, Bob. I'm speaking to you. Wow, you look really good today. (laughs) Now then to destroy. You know, there's some things that we need to destroy in our lives today. And you know, positive preaching won't get you to destroy them. I always tell people, whatever problem you got in your life, I told them this in, in, uh, in, uh, people ministry yesterday. Whatever problem somebody's got in their life, they'll never get out of that problem that they do three things. The first thing they got to do is they got to identify the problem. The second thing they got to do is they got to isolate the problem. And the third thing they got to do, they got to annihilate the problem. You see, you got to identify what your problems are first. And some of us have a little trouble with that. So you need a guy and a guy like me to help you identify it. Now, don't get mad at that. If I went out hunting with some of you guys, which I don't know very much about it, you'd out there and you'd say, Bob, now don't step on that. There's, a, there's some deer tracks. Don't mess them up. They're going this way. Well, I thought they were going this way. No, they're going this way. How do you know that? Because there's some things right there and you've got to follow that. Okay. If I go fishing with some of you guys, you say I'd be ready to catch up. Don't do it there. There ain't no fish there. We've got to get over here. How do you know that? I mean, I went hunting with one guy, you know, and he took me turkey hunting out there. And it, you can only hunt, uh, if I remember this right, in the, in, the, in, in, the, uh, in the spring season, you can only hunt males. And uh, you can't hunt males in the fall season. You can only hunt females. So he's out teaching me how to do this. And he said, I'll tell you how you know. He says, well, if it's a male or there's, there's females. And I said, okay, because I didn't see any around. He says, look at the turkey droppings. <laughs> Find some turkey droppings. And so I found a bunch of turkey droppings. And he said, now, how do you know that uh, you can tell that one's a male, one's a female? And I was so hoping that I didn't have to taste them to find out which one it was. (laughs) He said, male turkey droppings will always be in a form of a J. Female turkey droppings will be straight. Now, that may not mean nothing to you, but that'll help you if you want to hunt turkeys. (laughs) But I needed help. I need help to fish. I need somebody to point out where to fish, what lures to use. I need somebody to say, don't put that, that buck scent on you. That's a, that's a mating thing. you are going to be attacked by a hundred <laughs> deer if you put that on, you know. I, I, don't, I, I need somebody to help me. There's a lot of things in life I don't know anything about, and you have to help me. But I'm telling you, when it comes to preaching, there's some things I have to help you identify. Amen. But we don't want to identify them. And then there's some things that you and I, once we identify it, we have to isolate it. And we don't want to do that. We always want to work on the problems in our life that are not the real problems. You ever notice that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got this problem that's really bad, but uh, I'm going to work, work on this one. <laughs> Fix that carpet, Steve, will you? And I'm telling you, nothing negative. You got to root out. You got to pull down. You got to destroy. You got to throw down. And when you get to that point, then you can build and plant. Trying to build and plant people's lives without going through the first four is a waste of energy and time. But that's where we're at today. Now, once she gets you into her church and you want understanding, she deceives you by giving you all the things that have nothing to do with God. And here's how she does it. Look at verse 17. Stolen waters are sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. See, rule number one is steal all the things from the Bible and God that make you look real and leave the things that when you preach them, they make you really real. Steal faith, steal worship, steal praise, steal love, steal God, and then redefine what they mean. Take them out of the Bible, reduce them to a non-offensive, redefined term. Make them a position that you'll never be offensive to anybody or make them mad because you don't want to lose people because when you lose people, you lose money. And with all the grandiose things you want to do, you got to have money because as the old saying is, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. But it all looks so good and positive. Why, this church is just as I imagined God to be, large holy, decorated with all kinds of things. I'm in the presence of God. <laughs> Verse 18, but he knoweth that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Proverbs 16, 25 says, there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but end thereof are the ways of death. The teaching is so obvious to one with understanding, false doctrine and false teaching will always appear to man's, appeal to man's flesh. It's portrayed as the right and Christian. The man will fall every time into this trap without a Bible to guide him. Listen, false doctrine and false teaching will always hang out around real truth. That's how they survive. They always steal and borrow from the real thing to pass it off as legit. This is why real truth, when you find it, is always defined in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 naked truth. It hides behind nothing, it cloaks itself with nothing, it will stand on its own. It needs no props or illusions to pass it off as real. It is always plain and it is always simple to those who read it. People need to go to church to hear truth, not to be entertained. I'm not in the the preaching business. I'm not in the entertainment business. Verse 18 says, but he knoweth not that the dead are there and that he, her guest, are in the depths of hell. Listen, this queen of heaven holds a banquet every Sunday morning and Sunday night feasting on the dead in hell. Beneath the popular, attractive, enchanting, bewitching, enticing, and alluring veneer, there lies the worm that dieth not and the fire that is not quenched. And the printed invitation to this banquet are passed out every Sunday on beautiful printed orders of service that lead you straight to hell. Human nature is such that you can build a church of 10,000 people if you just never preach on sin. Never preach on negative things. Stay positive. Look only for the good in people without ever preaching on sin. If you bring the worldly things in, man, you'll pack the place out. Who wouldn't want to come to a church that you can still social drink, still do all the things that the world does? Who wouldn't want to be part of that? Why, old Billy Sunday's probably rolling over in his grave right now. But you know what the real tragedy is? Nobody even knows who Billy Sunday was anymore. One man single handedly brought in prohibition by preaching on the ills of liquor. He was wrong. Him and J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris and Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham and Gypsy Smith. Gypsy Smith and Sam Jones. Jamson and Bob Jones Sr. all wasted an enormous amount of time preaching on sin. If they'd just been born a little bit later or wait a little longer, they wouldn't be sin anymore. Mm -hmm. See the problem we got? Wow, the Bible truth and Christianity has really changed. We're progressive. We've evolved the sins of the church that they used to preach on just brought all into the church and now it's not a problem anymore. That sounds familiar, like 325 A.D. with Pergamus. Listen, this old gal will put out a grand invitation to get understanding, all right, but it won't be God's. It'll be the invitation to send you to hell if you're unsaved and strip you if you're saved of every millennial reward you'd ever have. You know, I, I never read that passage or think about these things and I don't think about a story a true story that I read about 25 years ago. I read it in the Kansas City Star. It was a story about a tragic story that took place out in Kansas someplace. Can't remember where it was. But there was two boys. They were brothers, about 11 and 12. And uh, they lived on a farm out there someplace in Kansas. And after the chores were done every day, they always enjoyed going down to the Kaw River and jumping in and going for a swim. And that cold water was always good because it can get hot in Kansas. And on this particular day, the older bro- brother told his, his younger brother that he had found a, a better spot to swim in. And they were all excited about it, a place where they had a high bluff that they could run and jump off and get into the water, and it was a, a, just a great place. Well, when they got off from work that afternoon, uh, later in the afternoon, and they took off down there, when they got there, the older boy, he just, he just stripped off his clothes, and he went running and took a leap off the bluff, calling for that younger one to follow but the younger boy hesitated. The bluff was pretty high, and he was a pretty little guy. But he watched his brother hit the water and go under the surface and with a big splash and watched him go under. But the older boy didn't come up. Seconds turned into minutes, and after about four or five minutes, he began to see a red trickle of stain of blood come up from the spot where he jumped in. He ran home and alerted his parents, who called the sheriff, who called the fire department, and everybody came to that scene along the river, the Carr River. The rescuers went into the water, but the water, the Carr River, is such a muddy river, they couldn't see anything. Finally, they got to the spot where they said he went down, and they kind of went straight down there, and when they went down there, they found that the boy had jumped off of that, off of that bluff, and going down about six feet under the water, they found him dead he'd hit the water and went down to the bottom and he impaled himself on a sharp tree limb of a large tree stump that was underneath the water. And because the water was so muddy, not very clear, the boy could not see what danger was just below the surface. You know, I've thought often on that over the years, on that story, and I thought how that that story is just like false churches and false religions. They always muddy the water. They never want you to see the impending death that's just under the surface. They want to portray it as a fun time, a positive time, just like this little kid. Oh, we're going to have fun. Here's a high bluff. We can jump off. We can get into the water. It'll be great. But he never knew and understood because of the muddiness of the water that right underneath there, right under the level, was that spike waiting to impale him to take his life. And false religion will do the same thing. It'll always muddy the waters. It'll never show you what clearly is the truth. It'll always muddle the water so you can't what's really see underneath. That only you can see is what's on the surface. Two boys, two kinds of people. One jumped right in, threw caution to the wind, lost his life. The other one hesitated, and he lived. Two types of people in the Bible. The foolish man will always, because he's void of understanding, He'll jump right in, think it's great, never stop to see what it really is all about, what's underneath the surface. He'll just jump right in, and he'll wind up in hell. The wise man, he'll hesitate. He's got got to understand. He knows what to look for. He knows what the real thing is, so he's not going to be easily fooled. And he won't be fooled by the muddy waters. He'll learn how to clear away the mud and wait till the mud settles to see what he's really got before he jumps in. One died and goes to hell. One dies and goes to heaven. It's just that simple. And there you have Proverbs chapter 9, and we'll end there, and next time we'll get into chapter 10. Now, if we're dismissed here in a moment. Please take the time, families, to sign up for the Halloween things back there and the singles that are going to help me, and, and then make sure that you understand that we'll start, restart here, calling you up here in about 10 minutes. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you and praise you for this great passage and for all that it means to us. Thank you, Father, for giving us the truth and for giving us the word of God that we know that no matter what happens in this world, the word of God never changes and will never change. Lord, I believe today what I believed 40 years ago. And Lord, if I live to be another 40 years old, I'll believe then what I believe now. It doesn't change with me because it's the truth and truth doesn't change. And it's the naked truth. It's open. To everybody who wants to see it doesn 't hide behind anything we don 't cloak anything here we don 't hide or mask anything here. What you see is what you get, and that 's the way the bible is that 's the way the Lord is. Help us, Father, to learn and grow through all of this, to become men and women who who understand all the things of God and be able to help others get that understanding. Blessed throughout this day, blessed with the things we endeavor to do for Kyle. Blessed for the things that we do for the homeless people and for the kids and for our own kids. And we just pray, Father, that you'll mm-hmm. give us your blessings today and keep us safe. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Mm-hmm. Wanna get on flag football? See Zach up here. God bless you. You're dismissed.